Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Shea Anything Podcast. Doug Williams back alongside Andy Martino. Andy, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good. Um, let's. We got the small talk out of the way. Um, <laughs> That's what you call banter, folks. Since we last spoke, the Mets have hired a manager. Uh, Beltron. Is that who they manager. got? Yeah. So on Friday, you and I spoke via phoner. Via as Skype. The, as the, via Skype. Oh, as yes. Skype. Breaking. Our, new, our breaking news special. Um, what was your initial reaction given all the reporting you've done on this topic? I don't think I had, like, I, okay, let's, let me answer it a different way. I was about to say I don't, didn't really have an initial reaction because there was no initial. I was just working on this for weeks. You know, there wasn't a moment of, I was chasing this story and got to the point where I knew it was going to be Beltron. Uh, that day, Friday afternoon is when I knew. Um, but then I actually was able to take a step back and go, holy crap, because it's a really big deal what they've done. And I was able to appreciate that for a moment and say, wow, the real reaction here is holy crap. Because this is a Hall of Fame, a future Hall of Fame player who now wants to manage the Mets. It's just a really big deal, let alone all the issues he had with the Mets on the way out the door and before the door was even on the horizon. There were a lot of issues there. So just on a lot of levels, holy crap. That was um, my reaction. And I'm just curious because you and I have talked so much about how secretive they were being with this process. Sure we talk a lot about the presser that just happened at City Field. One of the things Brody said was, with a smile, he was appreciative that the media was respectful of their secrecy, which is kind of a funny thing to say. A little, anyway. little troll in there. I saw it in um, Brody's eyes when he yeah. said that. So do you believe they, they wanted it to be Beltron all along? No. And no? No. You think that he won the job he, slowly? Yes, he won it in the process. That's exactly right. He entered it through his own will. He and his agent, Dan Lozano, put him in this. I admit that the Mets were unwilling, but he pursued this vigorously from the beginning. Uh, certainly wasn't a front runner. Was he, he wasn't even a front runner in the last week. I, I was getting vibes of uh, Tim Bogar and Eduardo Perez really being in good position that last week. And Beltron just continued to fare very well. And one thing I was told of someone that was in the room for a lot of these was that his sincerity is what won him this. Yeah. And that they just over and over again left themselves feeling like this is such a genuine guy that I think that helped him really beat out uh, some, some strong contenders here. And back to, to my answer to my original question, which was my reaction it took me a little bit, a little while, just like you said. Um, but by six o'clock in the middle of the Baseball Night New York show yeah. on Friday, I realized that I, I, we spent a lot of time talking about their next hire as being the opposite of Mickey Calloway, in that maybe it would be an experienced yeah. guy who, you know, wouldn't be an issue with the in-game managing. Maybe when I took a step back, I realized maybe we should have spent more time thinking about how the Mets were going to go in the opposite, uh, uh, the opposite direction from a, a person standpoint. And yes. I think that ended up being so important. And you listen to Brody and, and Carlos today, you realize that just who Carlos Beltran is mm -hmm. was a huge part of their decision to hire him. This might be a good time for the inhale-exhale bite. When we began this process, it was important for all of us in the ownership group and the baseball operations department to feel like we could exhale when we walked into the manager's office. We didn't want to inhale in anticipation of the conversations. Instead, we wanted to feel comfortable, we wanted to feel welcome, and we wanted to feel a partnership with the manager. So that was a couple things there, Doug. I think that was the difference between Beltron and Callaway 
if it wasn't a shot at Callaway, it was at least the contrast, what he's looking for versus what he had, where you're looking forward to the conversation rather than dreading it on some level. There's also probably, I, don't have, I, I didn't ask Brody about this, but I, I am guessing that it was a reference to the Joe Girardi factor too, because that's a guy who does not want you in his office or he doesn't want to talk to the media or he doesn't want to probably talk to a player or he's just so tight after games that that wasn't going to be that kind of collaborative relationship they sought out. So that is what you're talking about. The difference uh, with with Beltran is that he is open, he's sincere, he's interested in being collaborative, or so he says. Now, having said that, one, what, one thing that Carlos Beltran has never done is manage Major League game and then be in his office after. So I guess we don't know exactly how he's going right. to be, but based on how he came across in the interview process, uh, they're they're taking an educated guess that he's going to be someone who they can talk to and deal with in that moment easier than Callaway. Uh, whether you inhale when you talk to Callaway or just barf, either way, it was not a fun conversation. And Girardi, you definitely inhale because everything around Joe Girardi after a baseball game is just tightness. So whether we're talking about the exhale bite that we just heard or the word collaborative, um, I think it's interesting, too, that, that Brody talked about Beltron and the fact that he wants to beat the opposition and they see him in the role as as the Mets manager really wanting to um, scout and eventually uh, beat the opposition and I think they part of the exhale bite was the fact that in the collaboration aspect of mm -hmm. these things they're going to walk into his office and learn a thing or two. That's a great point. That's a great point because he has that reputation as that guy that loves to pick up uh, pitch tipping it's a well-told story about how he was the one that spotted that James Paxton was tipping pitches earlier this past season when, when Beltran worked for the Yankees. He saw that, told Paxton, helped Paxton turn his season around. He loves that stuff to the point where when I ask Beltran what he thinks about a given player, that's where his mind goes. Like I said to Beltran once last month in Houston, uh, what do you think of Bregman, Alex Bregman from playing with him? He goes, oh, I love Alex Bregman. He sees things. He picks up on things. It's forefront of Beltran's mind when he's evaluating a right. guy. That's like how he thinks to answer. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, Bregman picks up pitch tipping. I like that guy. So that's where his mind is for sure. I heard Ed Coleman make a point earlier that when he covered Beltran as a Met in his playing days – that he would talk to other guys in slumps or guys who had just gotten out of slumps, and they'd be like, yeah, I talked to Carlos, and he That's noticed true. that I was doing this one thing. That's true. That, honestly, I know it's just a part of this hire. If if we're channeling why I'm optimistic about this move, that stuff is the number one reason. Mm -hmm. it, because there's a chance that that actually affects the win-loss column. If he can translate that eye that he's had mm -hmm. for an entire big league career – and turn it into helping the Mets players in sure. the organization scout and, and nitpick and find things, I think that could potentially be really important. It could. Now, of course, it all comes down to talent and the players that they give him and the right. players performing, but that can be an extra X factor. If you look at the Houston Astros, Beltran's final team, they're so good at what many would say cheating, what some would say gamesmanship, but they pick up on all these things. And it helps to give them that extra little edge, for sure. And Beltran's a guy who uh, is very much into finding those things. So uh, we're going to get into more of the baseball side of things because obviously the, the off-season plans were discussed at length and, and we're going to play Beltran's answer eventually to uh, the, the roster and what he kind of left uh, for us to guess um, in that answer. But uh, I, I want to play first Carlos in his press conference 
um, merged into Spanish and talked about Puerto Rico and, and how important his roots uh, have been and are to him. And he got emotional uh, during that portion of the presser. And then uh, without being um, prompted, without being asked, he kind of merged back into English and explained to us what he had said and why he had gotten emotional. I want to play that for you. Continue, continue with everything. Uh, I'm sorry, I get emotional because when I, when I talk about the kids from, from my academy in Puerto Rico, uh, I, I could see in them uh, the passion and the desire that they have to, to accomplish their dreams. So basically, I'm, I'm saying that fight for your dreams. And you know, if I was able to accomplish uh, having a, being able to have a good career and be in the position where I am today, there, there's no doubt that anyone out there can do it. So what's so interesting, you and I have already talked about this, the fact that Carlos Beltran made $220 million and that accomplished almost anything you can in a big league career. Yeah. And and that now he's looking at it from a place after being hired as the manager, and, and we've talked about what the role of manager even means nowadays, now he feels like he could step back and say, look at how far I've come. And that, to me, was a learning moment from today, which was he really feels the accomplishment side of this yeah. and, and how far he's come in his baseball he, career. He's a prideful person who's proud of what he's earned and accomplished, but also he takes that not in terms of just internalizing the ego of that, but trying to pay it forward to other players. I remember he was in the late stages of his Mets career when he opened that academy in Puerto Rico. It's a high school and a baseball academy. And he cried at the ceremony when they opened it. He got emotional discussing it uh, today. And that, to me, was the most characteristic moment of his press conference, the most Beltran moment of his press conference, because he doesn't give lip service to... I'm gonna, these are going to be the most loved players in the history of love. He just emotes and feels it and, and really does want to help people, whether it's kids in Puerto Rico who, if they study and work hard and all that, can possibly get over here and play baseball and have a life like Beltran had, or if it's Met players that he will be now on his roster with him as the manager, he wants to help these people. This sounds corny, but I swear to God, it's true. I've known this guy a long time, and he really loves helping people. And that's one of the things that really shine through in the process. That's one of the things that Allard Baird and Omar Minaya, I'm sure, communicated to Brody. Uh, Baird and Minaya both have known Beltron for years. Baird was his GM in Kansas City. Minaya, of course, with the Mets. And they know him as someone who's that caring and who's evolved into even more so over the years. I remember, on a side note of this, when Beltron was in spring training with the Yankees and I was in that clubhouse, there was this, like, typed-out note. It's almost, like, I hate to sound snarky, but it's almost comical in how earnest it is. And the note said something like, like, on the on the corkboard that gave the players, like, report time and roster stuff and what times your workout and what times you throw in your bullpen. And it was like, dear young players, I will be holding a get-together on field whatever uh, tomorrow afternoon to discuss ways that you can have a good year, and we will be speaking in Spanish and English, and I do hope you can join me. You'll learn a lot. Sincerely, Carlos Beltran, or something. And that's who he is. He just really wants to help people to the point where it's, like, pretty rare in this game. By the way, um, your interview with him during the postseason mm -hmm. when he was in the Yankees' front office is still, in my opinion, the most honest view you can get at him and it was before mm. obviously he got the job um but andy basically asks him why he's interested and then doubles down why are you interested given the amount of success you had you have a great life why not mm. enjoy it um and i would uh suggest to any of you listening that if you haven't seen the interview i'm sure andy 
Uh, I think Andy did retweet it. On yeah, we put Friday. it back out. It's the stuff that he he that I was just communicating, but you can see his face and his body language, and how sincere he. I'm telling you, the guy is sincere. But I don't know if he's going to be a good major league manager. I really don't. I don't know if it was a good hire. I, I don't. Nobody does. Right. But I know that he's a sincere person. So let's go to the other side of things because um, if if you watched Girardi's presser when he got the Phillies job, it was nothing if not incredibly detailed. Mm-hmm. And um, we have talked a lot about uh, what he leaves to be desired as a candidate, Joe Girardi does. And you mentioned earlier just everything felt tight. And there's a, a, a lot that I don't like about him as, as a candidate and as a potential manager. But you left that presser feeling like this guy really knows the Phillies team. Yes. And even with his, Good point. Um, yeah, no, his issues. Totally fair point. So Steve Gelbs, after the Carlos Beltran presser today, and this was it was Andy's request to put this in the show, and I think it's smart. Um, Steve Gelbs asked Carlos Beltran, um, to evaluate the team that he's now the manager of. It's a good team. It's a good team. We have good players. Uh, there's a lot. There's going to be a lot of work to be done in spring training. But I'm looking forward to that. I always found spring training such a uh, a great time of the year, where hopes are high, you know, and you you ready. You show up to spring training in a great condition to work hard. So I'm looking forward to that day try to give a good message to the players that they feel motivated, that they understand that I got their backs and, uh, and I'm going to fight with them and hopefully we can have career years from a lot of players in our ball club. The important thing is that he, mm-hmm. he does know the team. Somewhere in his brain, he's gone through all those players with ownership. And but with you wouldn't know it from that answer. <laughs> exactly. So the important part is that deep down he knows these guys. He's in touch with them already. But it is interesting to look at that answer and examine what he didn't say. I mean, that answer, for all we know, Wright's still at third and Reyes is at short. <laughs> and, that's, and that's where his understanding finishes with that. Look, I, obviously he knows more than that, but he's going to have to give more detailed answers to baseball questions going forward. A press conference to introduce you is one thing. But the New York media is, uh, and the fans, when I say the media, I just mean as a go-between with the fans, aren't going to want that kind of a generic answer for too long. We're going to want, like, all right, but how can Dom Smith continue to perform in that role? Or uh, how can you use Familia next year, given the fact that he went away from that uh, two-seam pitch so much last year and relied on the slider and it wasn't always as good? He's going to have to answer questions like that pretty soon. I'm not, I'm being, I was being facetious and saying he doesn't know who the team is. Of course he does. He just passed through an intense interview process. And I've talked to him a little about the team, too, over the past month. So I know he knows who the players are and more about the team and watch his baseball and follow them. Uh, but he's going to have to drill down in his answers to show a fan base that's skeptical of his experience. He's going to have to show them that he knows what he knows. Right. My follow-up to you would be, and you kind of just answered this, but you cannot get through that, especially that rigorous of an interview process mm-hmm. without being an expert on the roster. Am I correct? Of or? course. Yeah, of course. You, and he, he knows the roster. But again, a big part of why he was hired were, was his communication skills, which have become very strong as he's grown into who he is now. But those were not in display on display in those answers. I'm not trying to make too big of a deal out of this. I'm just saying my overall perception of Carlos Beltran is extremely positive. Really, really like the guy, uh, and I, I don't want to 
go all the way in on that without saying, I noticed that answer, and he's going to have to work on answers like that. Right. You know, you, you have the easy one of saying we're probably about to have a Rookie of the Year and another Cy Young Award winner. Right. You know, something like that. To Some get... evidence that you know what's going on with the current roster. Right. Um, another aspect of this uh, communication and collaboration conversation is analytics, of course. And whether it was in your interview with him in the postseason or today, Carlos has been really interesting to listen to about this because he clearly, in a way that is not at all condescending, he's not dumbing down analytics for players, but he realizes that it's probably uh, worthwhile to not necessarily call it analytics and call it something else. Here was his answer about this today. I think the information is, is great. Uh, I always think about when you're doing an investment, you know, you want to know all the facts, all the all the data, if it's going to be a good investment or not. So analytics is the same, and in baseball it's the same. The way that sometimes, a lot of times, you see a little bit of a... Uh, people not being receptive because the way that you are capable of uh, pass that information forward. So the fact that I was able to be a player and receive that information and being able to digest that information, I will do my job also in being able to transfer that information to the players and hopefully they can understand that all we want is the best for them. Yeah, it's the receptive word that I thought was interesting because... I mean, you want all your players to be at least receptive to it. A guy like Jeff McNeil doesn't want to be bombarded mm -hmm. with information before at-bats. But his ability to know why certain players don't like it and why certain guys do and that everybody has a healthy place to, to be in between those two, right. that's what I think might be valuable. When it comes to analytics, the messenger is absolutely crucial right now because we're at the point now where it's not the Oakland A's 15 years ago. Everybody has the same information. Every team pretty much has the same information. Uh, I was centralized with a lot of the StatCast information that was available a number of few years ago, and basically just everyone's caught up and has that information available to them. So now it's how do you implement it? How do you communicate it? And what I, I, that, inf that answer that he just gave about information rather than analytics is the word that he uses. He's talking about information. He told that to me a couple weeks ago. I put it on Twitter, and there are some analytics people that were like, not liking that answer. Like, oh, what's the big deal? What people may not understand about analytics is that it's used to keep salaries down and keep older players from getting opportunities. So naturally, players are going to resent the phrase analytics. The game is changing in ways which cost them jobs. And analytics is often blamed for that. Whether it's the Tampa Bay Rays using an opener, which in addition to being decent baseball strategy, takes away a starting pitcher's ability to rack up starts, which count in arbitration. Take away relievers' ability to get saves and holds, which counts in our counting stats, which make you money. Some of these analytical applications cost you money. So if Professor Harvard comes downstairs from the, from the front office and says, do these things, and you're a player, you're gonna be like, get out of my locker room, please. But if Carlos Beltran is telling you, hey, brother, this is gonna help, that's gonna make a big difference in how you receive that information. So do you think that players, I know I'm generalizing here, but do you think a lot of players believe that you can um, make any point against me with analytics as long as you look hard enough? Like, do you think for the most part they look at it with a negative connotation because it's been used against them in the, in the past? Maybe. It, it's. I mean, unless you're Mike Trout, I don't know. You know, every player has downsides. Every, and there are guys like, a lot of the guys of the Astros, for example, Justin Verlander knows that when he was told about spin rate, it helped him uh, to figure out how to get better spin rate on his pitches. 
wink wink in some cases as far as that goes with the Astros but you take that information and you learn how to apply it and it makes you better it earned Verlander another contract so it's changing but analytic players believe that analytics are a major factor in why now players over 30 aren't getting as many jobs if you're Todd Frazier and you were thinking you were a star player, and then two years ago you only got a two-year offer from the Mets and nothing else, you blame analytics and the league's reliance on analytics. And, and sometimes that's applied way too broadly. But it's change come. It's like if you work in a, at, a much lower, at a much higher salary point, it's like if you work in a coal mine, you're going to be uh, not all that receptive to green technology, right? Because you're thinking, this might cost me my job. It might cost me money. That's how a lot of players think of analytics. And by the way, they should. Management uses analytics in a lot of cases to depress salaries. So, if, if so, again, I'm just repeating myself, but if someone from management comes down and presents them to you, you're going to be instantly more skeptical, pr probably unfairly so in many cases. It, it, look, the, the picture that we're, we're painting here leads me to this, this take, I guess you could call it, that I'm not sure the Mets could have hired anybody mm -hmm. that I would be more confident can communicate with the players than, than Carlos Beltran. I think Eduardo Perez would have done a great job I'm with sure that, too. I'm sure he would, too. Uh, in a similar way. But Carlos Beltran is a freaking Hall of Famer. So, right. Yeah. So, from that perspective, bilingual, um, Hall of Fame level player, just removed from the game. Wait, I understand he's not in the Hall of Fame. Right. Yes, thank you. Um, has worked in a front office, has basically been a player manager. Like, I know, at least I, I can come as close to knowing, mm -hmm. it, to not 100% knowing, that he's going to walk in there and be respected by the players in a clubhouse. No question. So the only question here is the in-game part, which any Met fan listening is thinking, okay, yeah, and that's a big question. That is part of the reason, if not most of the reason, that Mickey Callaway just got fired. So... I, I, I understand that part, but I also I don't know um, how important the in-game stuff is on a 162-game scale. Like, you know, Dave Martinez just won a World Series. Not a good in-game manager. So, still, like, yeah. are we supposed to think that that is still – forget what the game values. Mm -hmm. Are you supposed to still think that the in-game portion of being a Major League Baseball manager is without question the most important oh, aspect I, of the job? I don't know if anyone would say that. It's that I, I mean, someone might say that. It's the culture part, the communication part, absolutely, is the most important part of that job. In-game decisions are important, but when you scrutinize them, most of these managers do things that, that right. most people consider objectionable. If you look at the Man, at the the off uh, the postseason, excuse me, that Aaron Boone had, where he executed these complicated game plans to the T without making one mistake, uh, according to the game plans, that is rare. And he made big mistakes a year ago. Most of these guys are messing something up at some point, and Beltron will too. With Callaway, it was too much. With Dave Martinez, it's too much, but he was in a parade. So and also, so who knows? The culture part of Dave Martinez is probably something we should give him credit for. Yeah, he's, because yeah. That clubhouse just before they won, after they won, all talked about the atmosphere, and the manager plays a big role in now, letting that happen. Alex Cora and AJ Hinch seem good at the culture and the moves. Game seven of the World Series accepted with Hinch. That goes to show everyone thinks, probably rightly so, that AJ Hinch is one of the brightest managers in the game. He had a bad game, 
uh, in Game Seven of the World Series. So it goes to sh- this stuff can come and go. Right. That, it's it's not an easy job. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. So we're talking about AJ Hinch, mm-hmm. good in-game manager who can be a terrible in-game manager on any given day. Right. You can't be. I I I don't think you could just become a terrible communicator. Wake up one morning and not be able to communicate. You know what? With clubhouse. You're either good or bad at that. You know what? I disagree. I know what you're saying, but some guys get in that seat and get and tighten up. Uh, no, I'm saying once you're in the job. No, but some guy like you can be. Um, what's a really good Chip Hale's a really good example of this. So was consi- the former Mets coach was considered a really top managerial prospect. Good communicator, good guy, relaxed, every smart, prepared. Then he gets the job in Arizona, and the whole league watched him tighten up. And I'm sure that was not just media. I'm sure that was players, too. Some people get in the big chair and become worse communicators. But I'm just Matt Williams. Once you're in the chair. Yeah, once you start, if you're good at like it. Like, if you've hired a manager I and see. you're in the middle of a season, you can wake up one morning and, and your manager can really mess up a game. Mm-hmm. But if you know that that's a good person and a good yeah. uh, leader of your organization and a good communicator, that makes you feel better because it's like, okay, he may m- manage a perfect game tomorrow. Like, Yeah, if he's got the skill for that. I, I just mean, can't think of one manager in Major League Baseball that has a perfect in-game. I mean, no, it's of course impossible, not. obviously. And but. we don't know. And you have to watch almost all. Like, You have to be in that. Like, I didn't know. I thought Tori Lovello was a good manager. Until I started talking to people in Arizona who were like, no, 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 in game, whoa, it's 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 brutal sometimes. Like, oh, okay. So it's pretty tough to get to the truth of these matters unless you watch them all the time. Yeah, it, it's such a good point. I in my brief time of of being the Mets field reporter occasionally for SNY, I remember uh, one time I, I won't name the manager or or anything, but I opposing team comes in and. I was sitting in the presser with the, mm-hmm. the manager, with the local media, and I s- talked to a, a reporter in that uh, market right after he, s- he finished spoke- speaking, and I was like, hey, he's an impressive guy. Is, is he a you know, well-liked guy? Around? No, 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 no. Um, it's maybe the most important uh, reason that you have to watch a team for 162 or as close to To really know possible. what you're talking about. To really yeah. know the reputation of a manager. Mm-hmm. But that's why, I mean... Look, Beltran could go out there and do jaw-droppingly bad in-game things. Or he could be a natural. Or, or he could just be somewhere in the middle. Who knows? Probably the, the latter. But he gets the sole blame if he loses the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, this, the stars of the team don't like him. He, d- he gets partial blame if the in-game moves are bad because the in-game moves aren't all on the manager. That's true. That's true. It's an interesting dynamic. And there's a lot of factors you don't know. Like, for example, we just used Hinch in Game 7 of the World Series. Why didn't you bring in Cole in the middle of an inning? It's Game 7 of the World Series. We understand that it's better to bring a starter in a clean inning, but come on, man. You just brought in uh, Will Harris, I believe, was the first one out. And you have Garrett Cole out there. And later we learn that Hinch promised Cole that he'd get a clean inning. All right, well, sucks, but out of his hands. Right. So we, my point is that even when a manager appears to screw something up, we often don't have all the information. Man, it's, it's a tough just, job to evaluate. It, it, thinking back to the last couple episodes we've done, um, 
I have at times almost advocated for eliminating the manager title. I, I think you could combine manager and general manager. And um, I just think that right now um, the role is in flux, the manager role. And I, I, I don't know in some cases who would want to do it. It mm -hmm. doesn't sound like a fun job to me. Right. And here we have a guy who, as I've said, has accomplished everything in baseball. Mm -hmm. Uh, who looked as, at this job as the pinnacle uh, in uh, the place where he lives um, to be a manager of a baseball team. Um, I, I guess just from the, the point where you asked him on the field in the postseason, you made a lot of money, you've got a family, why not just relax mm -hmm. to where we are now where Carlos seems to be as excited as ever mm -hmm. to have this job. Are you surprised that a player of his ilk has decided to do this? Absolutely. Of course, very much for the reasons that led me to ask that question. It's in many ways a thankless job. It's a high-pressure job. You, you just have an addiction to competition sometimes, I guess, and, and the desire to help people that we talked about before. And he got out of the game. I'm sure he needed to take a, a little bit. He didn't work in the game for a year. Then he was a, a front office uh, assistant for the Yankees that he had, so he did important work there, but he wasn't exactly clocking in and clocking out. He came and went as he pleased. And then he must just have felt that I've got that itch for competition again and then feels like he can do it. And ego is a part of this too. He's like, I, I can do it. And maybe there's a part of him that wants to turn around the, he was the greatest position player in Mets history and a lot of fans still don't seem to appreciate him. So maybe he wants to win and turn that around for good, too. Re rewrite the story. Yeah. As he, as he, he said that. That was a, a nice little line that he finished with. Uh, he wants to rewrite the Mets story. That's mm -hmm. right. So all those reasons, I guess, are why. And uh, how, would you, how would you view bench coach right now? Because we're uh, you know, a year removed now from Jim Ruggleman and, and a move that, that I thought was the right move on paper. Mm -hmm. uh, turned out that Riggleman didn't help Callaway with the in-game stuff. Right. Um, maybe he tried. I don't know. Um, maybe he just wasn't that good of a manager himself. That's true. Do you think that this hire for bench coach should be the story that it is? If, if Terry Collins' name, had, if Beltron had not given Terry right. Collins' name in now two interviews... Do you think we should be talking about this hire as much as we are? Yeah, it's an important hire, but um, it can work a number of different ways. Boone has uh, Josh Bard, who is equally inexperienced. He's been a coach before. He had a little more experience than Boone, but the point is he's not wise old veteran manager, and that's worked fine. Uh, Gary DeSarcina for Callaway didn't work fine uh, in his first year. That's why they brought in Riggleman and demoted DeSarcina. It has to be someone who there's a comfort level with, with Beltron, and it would help if it was someone who could, who could uh, assist with in-game moves and just the basics of, like, well, pitching. Pitching coach is also really important. Someone who knows Beltron well told me this. is like he doesn't really know that side of the game. He's never had to think it through. Literally, when you make pitching changes, when you get a guy up, things like that, he, he's going to need a pitching coach. That's important. Who, yeah, he, he's never, when would he have ever thought of that? He's standing in center field when, or, or right field or on the bench or whatever. When the manager's doing these things, he doesn't know when you get a guy up to bring him in the game. He doesn't know, oh, I, wait, I can't use him. To, to, he's, I can use him consecutive back-to-back -back days. He needs this. He needs that. Out my, all that kind of stuff. Oh, this pitcher. By the way, he's going to have to deal with the, the new rule, by the way. Th what is it? A, 
A uh, minimum of three batters faced. Is it definitely coming in next year? I believe so. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. I, can't I lost track of that one, as to whether that was actually being implemented next year. Uh, so he's managing a National League game, which is much harder than an American League game, but still with pitching stuff, it's going to be like he doesn't, he's never had to deal with uh, OPS against on pitches 105 through 111 for right. this guy is. So maybe that's more important than the bench coach. Too bad uh, Mickey's already coach. been hired as the, as the Angels bench coach. You and he would, he would, also, uh, he would be great, coach. and he would love everyone. More than they've ever been loved. That's it. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because now that I think about that, that is really important. Um, we are spending a lot of time on bench coach because we think that's the person who decides, mm -hmm. who might say, hey, Carlos, like, you should get a guy, you know, yeah, third, time, third time through the orders. That's coming usually up. a pitching like, coach. Pitching coach is yeah. maybe as important to all of that. Um, my Saturday night, we, we had a, a, a brief discussion about this before we started taping. Mm -hmm. You had a boring, uh, very Doug Williams Saturday night this weekend where you just cooked dinner for your family. Not only that, but on the Jersey Shore, there couldn't have been more yeah. Doug Williams. I'm there was surprised just no, I wasn't there. There was no corn, and that um, was it. Be weird if you cooked two, for my family one night. Two Saturdays ago, though, you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had a, a fox head on your head, and you were did, singing. very realistic fox head. You were singing um, what Christmas song? I was singing the male part of Baby It's Cold Outside as, as a human-sized fox into a microphone. Okay. That's what I did. Oh, and then I sang Suspicious Minds with my wife, and she did a great job on the backup. I like that song. Obviously, great song. I mean, two, two very good songs. Yes. I just so, by the fox head. It was a Halloween party. Yeah. Um, I, I went out to dinner. I, I've got nothing. You continue to bring the heat. I, I do. I have, I'm, I'm privileged to have an interesting life. And you have a nice life. It's, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. What were you for Halloween? I bet nothing. Nothing. I, oh, you're not. Oh, that's right. That's one thing you're curmudgeonly about. That's okay. I'm, I'm a Halloween Grinch. I, I just, I do not like it. That's okay. And that way on Valentine's Day. I, my wife and I, when we were dating many years ago, were like, can we just not do Valentine's Day? And she's like, yeah, great. And we never have, and it's great. So I guess that's your Halloween. Yeah, I, I, I feel no, it stresses me out. Mm -hmm. Even this year, on my way home after Baseball Night in New York, it was like a sad scene in a movie. I saw all these kids around my neighborhood, so I, I stopped in a, in a store. I was like, I have to get candy because I'm going home now. Right. And if Was it trick-or-treating in your building? Yes. So okay. if I have kids knock on my door, I don't want to be that guy who opens the door like, sorry, kids. Uh, right. Or not open my door. So I bought candy, and nobody came. So it's like, that's exactly. what I get for, for trying. Are you at the level of Halloween curmudgeon where you put razor blades in chocolate bars? Are you that guy? Is that a thing? Remember how your parents used to have to expect your, inspect your candy for razor blades? Are you no. too young for this? This uh, might have been an 80s thing. I think so. This is a big 80s Jeez, thing. that sounds dark. That was a huge... You had to unwrap your candy for your parents oh in the 80s. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there was this myth. And finally, I think, at some point, apparently before you were a child, someone was like, has there ever been a razor blade in a <laughs> piece of candy? And then I think... It's just a myth. I don't inspect my kids' candy now because it's like, who would do that? Um... All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate it, as always. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already. You can find us in the podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just click on our logo and Flynn says subscribe. it was a 90s thing, too, so you just, the, the razor blade thing. I just wasn't worried about it. Uh, 
your parents maybe were my parents just didn't reckless. think it was necessary maybe the williams family was pro razor blade and that's why they didn't I just expect. really i was tough enough to to grind my way through a season, uh, a, a uh, a Reese's, was, with, a, a Reese's peanut butter cup with a razor blade in it. Mr. and Mrs. W were putting the razor blades in the candy, oh so we didn't gosh. want to draw attention. A lot of really bad speculation going on. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. <laughs>